What's going on, everybody? My name is Zach. I am a fourth year medical student at the Wake Forest School of Medicine, and you are listening to the Rad Ed Podcast. Let's jump right in. So we're going to jump right in. I think it's important that we start with this basic concept before we dive into nuclear medicine and what it entails. The basic concept of nuclear medicine is that we're going to use a radioactive substance. This is an element that emits radiation as it decays. We're going to couple a radioactive substance with a biologically active chemical to visualize different structures based on the idea that some organs love certain substances. So for example, like the thyroid and iodine. So we have to kind of remind ourselves of a few of the basic physics concepts that we've all probably learned at some point. So when you think of an atom, an atom is an element, something like hydrogen, uranium. The atomic number of an element is the number of protons in its nucleus. And then there are isotopes, which are elements that have the same atomic number, but different numbers of neutrons. And so examples of radioisotopes that we use in nuclear medicine, things like technetium-99 or iodine-131. And then these radioisotopes um, undergo particle emission. And so this means that different types of particles like alpha particles, beta particles are released as the isotope reaches stability. So a lot of these chemicals, radioisotopes are unstable and they have to naturally reach stability and they do so by particle emission. And so the alpha particles, like I mentioned, those are usually too damaging. We can't utilize those, but we can use a beta particle, for example. These are electrons that are emitted that have really high energy that we can actually use to our advantage to destroy abnormal cancerous tissues. So another principle, as a radioisotope decays, it can release gamma radiation. And so this is a form of electromagnetic radiation. Gamma rays can be emitted. They're simple x-rays that come from the nuclei. And this energy is measured in electron volts or EV. So you might see on the nuclear medicine rotation that a lot of the radioisotopes dosing are measured in um, electron volts or the the energy that's released is measured in electron volts. Um, But the doses will be measured in a unit called millicuries or M capital C I millicuries. And then of course, every radioisotope has a half-life. And so your half-life is the time required for the radioactivity of that substance to decrease by half. And that depends on the actual element itself, so the physical properties of it, but also depends on your biologic systems as well. So if a radioisotope is heavily excreted in the urine, then we have to factor that in to create our effective half-life. And then an important concept to wrap your head around is the idea of scintillation. This is where a material lights up when exposed to ionizing radiation, and that flash of light is detected by a detector and it's amplified and then a computer system can convert that to an electric signal. So with all of those concepts reviewed, the way that nuclear medicine really works is we make a patient radioactive, they emit gamma rays, a gamma camera has a detector made of a crystal that will scintillate in response, a computer will create an image, and then we can have multiple types of nuclear medicine scans that result from that principle. And so two major types of scans I want to review, I think will be high yield for you. A PET scan, we've probably all heard of that. That is a positron emission tomography. This uses a radioisotope that produces positrons. Positrons are positively positively charged electrons, and we attach those to pharmaceuticals. So a common example is the glucose analog fluorodeoxyglucose, or FDG. 
and then we can image based on metabolic activity. So a lot of the times cancerous cells love to eat up extra glucose. And so if we have this radioactive glucose, we can see where there's cancer or increased metabolic activity, for example. A second type of study that you'll most likely come across is the SPECT scan. This stands for Single Photon Emission Computed Tomography. This uses a gamma camera and takes 2D pictures with a detector that circles around the patient to create a 3D projection. And so now we've talked a lot about scans, the principles of all of this. Safety is just so important in nuclear medicine. Um, we're dealing with radioactive substances, which is very different from most fields of imaging. So dosing is very crucial. There are spill safety precautions. Um, and then there are unique situations to where, you know, some radioisotopes can cross the placenta and breast milk. So we have unique considerations for the pregnant population. There are adverse drug reactions as with, um, you know, all pharmaceuticals. And then radio, radiation exposure is also a public health and public safety issue. And so we want to limit the amount of radiation that patients are exposed to, but also that other people in the public will be exposed to as our patients are made radioactive for these studies. So now we're going to go through the different types of scans and tests that you'll likely interpret on your nuclear medicine rotations or that you may see in a lot of other medical um, environments and, and concepts as well. So bone scans, for example, this is the first one that we're going to talk about. So bone scans are often used to screen for metastatic disease. Um, if we have an early fracture that we're not sure of on plain film x-ray radiograph, um, we can do a bone scan to diagnose early fractures. The tracer that we use, and tracer is just another term for the radioisotope that we use, the tracer we use for bone scans is technetium-99 methylene diphosphate, diphosphonate, excuse me, so TEC-99-MDP for short. And so that is useful for looking at the bones because that phosphate is going to be taken up by the bones and it's going to deposit best where there is bone turnover. So it doesn't only happen in places where there's, you know, a metastatic bone cancer, any condition where there's increased bone turnover, we can see some increased uptake on this study. And so the differential for that, you know, metastases, so cancers that have spread to the bone, primary bone tumors, fractures, arthritis, osteomyelitis, Paget's disease, with a lot of these, um, we can see different types of uptake patterns, but um, there will be a certain degree of bone turnover in all of these conditions, which we'll have to think about when we're interpreting bone scans. So for metastases, the bone scans are about 60 to 90% sensitive. So they're, they're very good at picking things up, but they're not very specific again, because there's a lot of different conditions that can mimic this. Um, but your metastatic pattern on a bone scan will most oftentimes be this multiple asymmetric randomly distributed pattern where you have multiple focal areas of increased uptake that don't follow a symmetrical pattern. And then some other diseases you may see on a bone scan with unique presentations, multiple myeloma. Uh, this is a lytic disease, so bone scans will often be negative. Um, photopenic and cold lesions, these are lesions that do not show increased uptake. They actually show decreased uptake, so photopenic cold lesions. This is where there's an absence of bone activity, so things like ischemia and destruction of bone can show up like this. Or if a patient has a prosthesis, for example, where there's not actual real bone tissue. And then a unique concept um, with bone scans is the super scan. So a super scan, you should Google a picture of this. This is where there's just diffuse uniform uptake throughout all of the bones. This is often from really bad metastases. Um, and remember, prostate cancer, for example, loves to go to the bones. 
or a super scan can also result from metabolic disease, things like hyperparathyroidism. And what's happening with a super scan is your bone is having this really, really revved up metabolic activity to where it's taking up all of the tracer. And a unique finding of a super scan to really confirm it for you is that you shouldn't really be able to see the kidneys because the bone is hogging up all of that tracer so much that it actually obscures your view of the kidneys. And on the next thing on a bone scan that you may see or come across is the triple phase bone scan. So this is where we inject a patient and we obtain images at different times. So we give a patient a radioactive tracer and then we take an image at one minute. This will show your arterial flow. Then we give uh, another image at five minutes. This will show your blood pool phase, soft tissue. And then at two to four hours, we take an image and that will show you a picture of your delayed bone phase. And so your flow phase at one minute, blood pool at five, and your delayed bone at two to four hours can be very useful to distinguish between things like osteomyelitis and cellulitis, which is often a tricky thing to tease out clinically and with um, just lab values and radiographs alone. So a triple phase bone scan can help you do that. So an osteomyelitis picture, your uptake on the scan should localize to the bone on your delayed imaging. And that makes sense, right? So as we take images after the injection has kind of made its way to the bone, if there's increased uptake and infection in the bone, we should see that increase in uptake on delayed. Whereas with cellulitis, where it's mainly the soft tissues that are affected, we should see a soft tissue uptake on the blood pool and the delayed that should be about equal. We shouldn't really see the tracer migrate into the bone on the delayed phase as we would with osteomyelitis. So now we can move into the next type of scan. So we talked about bone scans. That should give you a pretty good understanding there. Ventilation perfusion scans or VQ scans. You've probably answered this as a test question um, answer, but you've probably never seen one or known what they're all about. And so these are often used to diagnose pulmonary embolism when patients cannot undergo CT angiography. So CT angiography is the gold standard for PE diagnosis, and this is because you literally get to visualize those blood vessels. But when a patient can't do that, we can do a VQ scan, and this is where we give um, TEC-99 macroaggregated albumin, or TEC-99MMAA. This is where we make albumin, a protein, a certain size to where it is extracted in the pulmonary vessels specifically. So we can inject that and then image the patients from different angles around their lungs, and it'll create this 3D picture of the lungs where we can get an idea of your vasculature in the lungs. So in a normal scan, you'll notice that the heart and hyla area will be cold, and this just makes sense because there's no tracer being uptaken in that area. There's no lung tissue. Um, but we test perfusion first. And perfusion, again, is the amount of blood that's making its way to the lung tissue. This should have normal uniform uptake. Um, and then if it is abnormal, a ventilation test is, a ventilation scan is tested. And so in the ventilation scan, we actually have the patient breathe in a radioactive gas, um, such as a TEC-99 aerosol. And a normal scan should show a homogenous uptake um, with your first breath. And then it should wash out after two minutes as the patient ventilates and gets that breath out of there. And so how does this help us with the PE? So if you remember, a pulmonary embolism is all about VQ mismatch. So V, ventilation, Q, perfusion. With a pulmonary embolism, you have ventilation. The alveoli are there and the oxygen is coming in, but the blood vessels are blocked, so you're not getting any perfusion. And so on a VQ scan, we should see a normal ventilation scan with an abnormal perfusion scan. And there should usually be a segmental mismatch because of the, you know, the blood vessels of the lungs taper out and ultimately organize into different segments of the lungs. So we should see a segmental mismatch with normal ventilation, but abnormal perfusion. 
And then there's this interesting PIOPED trial. Um, if you talk to a nuclear medicine radiologist about this, um, PIOPED stands for Prospective Investigation of Pulmonary Embolism Trials to Determine. Um, this was a trial that was used to determine the best means of accuracy. And so, you know, when we get these VQ scans, how can we organize these into very low, low, intermediate, and high probability of there actually being a pulmonary embolism to help out clinicians in making actionable patient care decisions. So our next scan is the cardiac scan. This can be used to assess the perfusion of the heart tissue as well as wall motion. And the cardiac scans actually have a particularly great negative predictive value. And so the basis of the heart scan is heart cells that have decreased perfusion or viability will take up less tracer. And so we can use that concept and perform a resting and a stress scan. And that stress, we can do that chemically with something like adenosine, dibutamine, or we can have the patient hop on a treadmill, get their heart rate up, do some physical activity, and then we can scan their heart. And so um, interesting note I want to mention here, a cardiac scan is relatively dangerous. Um, there's a statistic here, one in 10,000 deaths occur as a result of the stress with four in 10,000 patients having a myocardial infarction from the test. So four in 10,000, that is, um, is a higher number, I guess, than I expected. So it's something to consider. Um, and, and we definitely have really well fleshed out criteria for who's actually going to get a cardiac scan. And we, we obviously do it safely, um, in the medical healthcare environment. Um, so the tracer for cardiac scan is Tech 99 Systemaby or Cardiolite, or there's another one, Tetrafosmin Myoview. And we will take various angles and views of the heart. And so if you see a nuclear medicine cardiac scan, you'll notice there's all these different like donut shapes and V shapes. And we basically are cutting the heart from different axes. And so you can have a short axis, which will show the heart as a circle. We can have a vertical long axis and a horizontal long axis. The the heart will show up as a U shape um, with the opening in different areas. And I'll actually throw a URL to a really good diagram of this in the show notes. And so usually you'll get two rows of images. Your first row will be stress and your second row is rest. And what we can use this for diagnostically is when we have decreased uptake on the stress images that corrects on the rest images, that can tell us that we have ischemia rather than an infarct. For example, reversible rather than irreversible. If we had an irreversible infarct area, then it wouldn't change whether it was stress or rest. So there's this other concept with cardiac scans I want to briefly mention, um, EKG gating. This is where we coordinate the timing of imaging with a patient's EKG. And so we just perform these images over a whole bunch of the patient's heartbeats to obtain a really accurate assessment of the heart's activity over time. And then we can take this a little step further. Um, we can use multiple gated acquisition scanning or a MUGA to determine the ejection fraction. And remember, a normal EF is about 50 to 80% in a patient. And then patients with an infarction, we can also see decreased wall motion or ventricular wall bulging. So the computers can actually um, create models of the heart and it's pumping wall motion as well based on this data. And we oftentimes lay this data over a CT scan where we can actually look at the anatomy of the heart. So now we'll move on to GI bleed scans. This is a pretty quick and easy one. This is where we just couple Tech 99 to red blood cells and then we scan the abdomen. And so bleeds will show up as an increased area uptake of radio tracer. Um, but there's kind of two conditions that tell you you're dealing with the GI bleed and not something else. The first is the radio tracer exists within a bowel lumen um, that increases in amount 
over time. And then number two, it moves through the bowel over time. And, and that's pretty much it for GI bleed scans. So your, your bleeds will show up as increased intake that is in the lumen of a bowel, increasing in amount and increasing uh, and moving throughout the bowel over time. So now we go on to thyroid. Thyroid scintigraphy, this is an awesome modality used to assess nodules, grave disease, uh, cancer. So the principle here is that hyperthyroid patients will show increased uptake if there is truly an increased amount of thyroid hormone being actively produced. And we perform this using radioactive iodine because remember the thyroid utilizes a whole bunch of iodine. So if we can radioactively label that, we can get a good sense of what's going on in the thyroid. And the normal thyroid, remember, is this kind of butterfly-shaped homogenous structure. And so some abnormal things that we can see on thyroid scintigraphy is, let's say a nodule shows up of increased uptake. We call that hot, or it can show decreased uptake, which is cold. And so um, those can give you different ideas of what's going on. So, for example, 95% of hot nodules or increased uptake are actually benign. These are things like toxic adenomas, for example. And then cold nodules, things that are hypoactive or showing up darker, um, or sorry, not darker, but not taking up tracer as much, cold nodules, these are more concerning for malignancies because these cancerous cells aren't able to actually function correctly in making and utilizing the iron. And so there are several patterns of disease that are unique to certain pathologies. So if you see an enlarged thyroid with multiple hot nodules all throughout, that could point to something like a multinodular toxic goiter. If you see an enlarged thyroid with diffusely increased uniform uptake rather than nodules, then you might think of more of a Graves' disease. Because remember, in Graves' disease, you have these antibodies that are stimulating the TSH receptor. So that thyroid is normal. There's no nodules per se, but it's just pumping out and making way too much thyroid hormone. What about an enlarged thyroid with heterogeneous uptake? That could point to something like a non-toxic multinodular colloid goiter. And then a dominant solitary cold nodule, especially in a young patient, would really make you suspicious of a malignancy. And so in that case, you're going to want to do a confirmatory ultrasound, which can really give you some great characterization of the nodule. And then you may want to do a fine needle biopsy later down the road as well. We can also determine if metastases have occurred in various organs that are of thyroid origin. And so with these thyroid scans, if we see thyroid uptake in other areas where there's not thyroid tissue, then we know, oops, there's a malignancy that made its way down there that is of thyroid origin. Um, for example, follicular and papillary thyroid carcinomas, they really like to go to the lungs, the lymph nodes, and the bones. And so moving on to our next and our final study of the episode, uh, biliary scans. And so you've probably all heard of a HIDA scan. Maybe you also answered that on a test question or on your surgery rotation. You maybe saw a HIDA scan. Um, HIDA stands for hepatobiliary aminodiacetic acid scan. And so this couples TEC99 to aminodiacetic acid to assess our hepatobiliary system. We often use this to diagnose acute cholecystitis. It is very sensitive and specific for that purpose. Or we can actually look for biliary leaks after surgery. And so the way we do this, we have the patient go NPO for three or four hours. We inject them with the tracer and the tracer will bind to protein and be taken up by the liver. And remember your liver then excretes everything out through the biliary system. So we're getting our radioactive tracer to be excreted through the biliary system. And then we can image at the appropriate time to get some good images of that. So a normal scan will show tracer that 
It makes its way to the bile ducts at 10 minutes and it fills the gallbladder in between about a half to one hour. And then the tracer makes its way all the way to the duodenum at about 60 minutes at about an hour. And so we can, if this isn't working correctly, we actually give a patient morphine to constrict the sphincter of OD, which will back up the biliary system and cause it to fill quicker. Um, but basically once we get the images and get everything set up, we can look at these images. And if we see a lack of filling of the gallbladder or a photopenic area where we would normally expect the gallbladder, that can suggest to us that the cystic duct may be obstructed. And so that there's not able to um, have material and substance pass into the gallbladder. That can actually be a finding that can diagnose acute cholecystitis. And again, this is also in conjunction with a lot of clinical information and they probably had a right upper quadrant ultrasound as well. And then for a biliary leak, um, like I mentioned, we can actually scan the abdomen and see, oh wait, some of that tracer is actually made its way outside of the biliary system. And so if someone just had a hepatobiliary procedure and then, you know, you do this scan and you find some tracer outside, then, you know, probably this was a um, wrongful post-surgical change or complication. So that's it. I know that is a dense episode. That is a whirlwind of information. Um, but if you listen to this maybe again or a few times, this should give you a really good fundamental understanding of the foundations of nuclear medicine so that maybe if you do a rotation in this, you'll maybe impress some people by having an idea of what's going on. But also, um, you know, a lot of these topics touch on multiple areas of medicine. You may deal with a lot of this stuff as an intern um, in whatever field that you're going into. So I hope this was helpful. And remember, we'll have the show notes with a lot of this information into bullet points that you can look at. We'll also have the references at the end of the show notes. And we hope you enjoyed this episode. We hope it was helpful and we'll see you all in the next one.